There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic. My name is Simon Moore. And in this episode, I'll be immersing you in the big one. Climate protest here in London, England. It's organised by Extinction Rebellion but there's hundreds of organisations coming out to send a message to the UK government demanding climate action. It's been a while since the last episode of Climactic, and certainly a while since my last contribution, which was covering the protests on the streets at COP26 in Glasgow over a year ago. Feels like a lot has changed in that time. We finally got rid of Boris Johnson, only to have six weeks of economic calamity with Liz Truss and now we've got Rishi Sunak at the helm of the UK government. We lost the Queen last year which was a huge deal for some people but led others to renew their calls to abolish the monarchy. On the global stage we've been watching with horror as Russia invaded Ukraine which has now been going on for 14 months. Whilst the UK has provided some military and humanitarian aid and taken in Ukrainian refugees, there's also been an escalation of the hostile environment in the UK. And the Tory government has increased its efforts to stop asylum seekers and refugees from reaching our shores. We've seen mass strikes across sectors in the UK, from nurses to train drivers, teachers to postal workers, firefighters to lawyers. I've been taking part myself. All have been fighting for fair pay and working conditions as inflation spiralled and social service budgets were stretched. The past few months have also seen attacks on trans people and trans rights, with the Tories seemingly happy to scapegoat anyone for the sake of stoking their culture wars and dividing society. No doubt the next general election, sometime early next year, is front and centre of their minds. In my own life, things have looked happier. I got engaged and road tripped around Europe in a fully electric car for three months with my fiance Natalie. And now we're planning ourselves a wedding festival. But in the world of climate, since COP26, it doesn't feel like we've made much progress. In many ways, governments like the UK have been reluctant to change. There are plans for a new coal mine in the UK, and new oil and gas licenses continue to be handed out, not to mention subsidies for fossil fuel companies. And there's this trend towards energy security in light of the war in Ukraine. We also saw record-breaking temperatures over 40 degrees Celsius last summer. And at this precise moment, there's an extreme April heat wave hitting many parts of Asia, with many experiencing 40 degrees plus. 
clearly our efforts need to be redoubled. We need governments to lead the way. That being said, many people and organisations are waking up and implementing changes to how they live and how they do business. They're not waiting for politicians to lead because it's clear this government isn't going to do that. That brings us to today. The big one, London. 21st to 24th of April, 2023. It's day one of four, and my plan really is to soak up the atmosphere, see what's going on, talk to people, find out why they've come, what they're hoping this will achieve, and explore a little bit this new approach that Extinction Rebellion is taking. Instead of focusing on arrests and roadblocks, the aim is to build coalitions, build relationships, make this the most inclusive, accessible rebellion and action in their history. So I'm excited to be here. It's already got a different feel to some of the previous, more confrontational rebellions that I've been to. And I'm excited to see who I get to meet and talk to and see what difference we can make as a collective. So thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoy this episode. And yeah, keep an eye out for more shows on the Climactic Collective. Right, off we go. Let's explore. My name's Rich Felgate. I'm a documentary filmmaker and a climate activist. And I'm here today in, in Parliament Square for the big one because basically I think whatever our views are on tactics or the kind of spectrum of tactics that we need to make change, it's always going to require people on the streets and an accessible movement where anybody who cares about climate breakdown which you know in reality should be anyone living on this planet that wants to have a future and wants life to prosper yeah we need those people on the streets demanding change these kind of accessible protests where you don't need to commit to, to getting arrested or do some 
serious disruptive action, we, we need that as part of a kind of wider ecosystem of resistance where people do directly challenge the industries and the government who are causing this problem in disruptive ways which may break the law. So just to set the scene, we're under a marquee, there's a Just Stop Oil banner, there's Global Justice Now just next to us. I guess the thing that sets this apart, it's raining and we've had a fair bit of rain for some other Extinction Rebellion big protests in London. But the thing that really sets this one apart is there's traffic going by and there's actually marshals keeping people onto the pavement as opposed to helping us block roads as, as we have previously. I came across you when you were arrested filming a Just Stop Oil action where they were blocking motorways, think around the M25 and the circular road around London. Presumably there's a lot more nerves when you're out filming direct action, whether that's sort of in the trees. Your, your documentary, Finite, The Climate of Change, is all about or features heavily some of the blocking, the, the sort of cutting down of trees in Germany, blocking potential coal mines in, yeah. in England. So presumably that's a very different feel for you as an individual when you're uh, attending this kind of thing. A protest like this, which is kind of more moderate in tactics, is inherently less exciting than people taking direct action or, or being in more direct confrontation with the police. But regardless of people's kind of views on, on tactics, I think we can all agree that we need more people to make change. I think it's really important that we still have the more disruptive, more confrontational side of protest, but at the same time we need to have a kind of lower bar of entry where people feel more comfortable to, to get involved, which is, I think, a bit, a bit more accessible when it's just coming out on the streets with your friends, with your community, and just making your, your voice heard. This is legal. People should be able to come out on the streets without the fear of, of getting arrested. And it's that, that diversity of tactics to show that it's not just a small minority of people in the likes of Just Stop Oil who do arrestable, disruptive actions. You're behind that one person jumping on a snooker table, there are tens of thousands of people that want change and are gonna make their voices heard by, by getting out on the streets. Throughout history, it's that diversity of tactics that has been successful, including tactics that are significantly more radical than what we see in, in the climate movement at the moment. We hear a lot in the media about how, how extreme these non-violent actions where people briefly disrupt a, a sporting event to get media coverage. Well. When we look back to the, the suffragettes, they were using militant tactics, firebombing, criminal damage, smashing windows. And we look back at them now as heroes and that it was justified to break the law and to use those, those militant tactics because that was the only way that they could make change. And it was all part of a, a broader movement. What's important is kind of being in solidarity with, with each other, showing that this movement is a collective mass of people and remembering who our, who our enemies are really, you know, the, the industries, the corporations, the people in government who will risk everything to continue business as usual, who are letting life on earth be destroyed 
in order for another decade or two of economic growth, of profit, of maintaining their power, their class power. That's a great summary, <laughs> and uh, yeah, thanks, thanks so much. You sort of hinted at it there around yeah, what sort of tactics we might see in future, but what sort of things do you imagine might come next, and what are your own sort of personal plans in relation to that? Like the future is, is unwritten, but I think one thing we can be sure of is people are not going to back down because the situation is just too serious to do anything other than, than keep going. Lives depend on it. Lives in the global south right now depend on whether we in the global north stop fossil fuel production, we stop this rampant consumption and economic growth at all costs. So considering that, I think it's inevitable that there'll be an escalation. And I think at the moment we're seeing that manifest in more and more kind of disruptive actions from the likes of Just Stop Oil, which I'm following for a documentary. And I think they're showing that this kind of tactic of breaking the mirage that everything is fine, you know, that when you turn on the telly and the snookers on you wouldn't believe that we're we're in an emergency until someone comes and disrupts that these activists feel like they kind of have no choice other than to do actions like that because because frankly the media is not telling us the truth about just how grave the situation is the media is part of maintaining business as usual so what do people do when we can't rely on the media to truthfully, honestly, effectively communicate the crisis? Well, people have to use, use other means to, to catch people's attention. We're going to see more and more of that, but also that's not the only way to escalate. I think there's moral justification for doing whatever it takes to, to stop the machines, the infrastructure, which is producing fossil fuels and emitting carbon as a moral justification for, for stopping that by whatever tactics work, because ultimately that infrastructure is fossil fuel production is people die. It's murder mediated through the atmosphere, the construction of new infrastructure, knowing full well what those carbon emissions are going to do. It's murder. And you know, what do people do to stop murder. <laughs> I think we, we all agree that if a house is on fire, it's completely justified to, to break down the doors, smash the windows in order to, to get someone out of there. I think we can use the same logic for the fossil fuel industry. This is infrastructure which is killing people and we need to stop it. And if governments won't stop it, the industry itself won't stop it, then it's left to the people to stop it. On the wagon, loaded with corn. It is an easy thing to talk of patience, to the afflicted, to speak the laws of prudence, to the houseless wanderer, to listen my name is Nikki Crowther and I'm a teacher. I teach ESOL, which is English to Speakers of Other Languages. I'm always 
appalled by the almost complete absence of any climate crisis teaching in my college. We've got something like 9,000 students and it, it barely exists. And I'm very concerned because I think, well, as I'm a teacher, if I'm not teaching it in, in an FE college of that scale, then who is? So I came, I've come down today to join the picket outside the Department for Education. And I'm pleased to say that I have networked and I've managed to join a local XI educators group in, in Hammersmith in West London. And also been able to stand up and be counted outside the Department of Education and put in my comments on a comments table requesting that climate change education be included on the national curriculum maybe a week compulsory every year throughout the the school years as a separate specialism but one of the reasons that I'm here is because last summer I was teaching some South Korean students in an online summer school and I was struck by how well informed they are about climate change it doesn't seem to be political there at all and how well informed they were about solutions as well everybody knew about it everybody was well educated about it everybody was worried and they were getting on and trying to fix things and I just think that in Britain we doing our usual Oh, somebody else will sort it out for us, even educationally. So I think our education system is extremely weak in this area at the moment. Well, thanks so much. And we've been enjoying the samba band outside the Department <laughs> for Education. Yeah, that clearly, wasn't bad either. <laughs> <laughs> clearly there's sort of an element of trying to make this enjoyable, like such a dire topic, mm. trying to make this kind of accessible, but also, you know, interesting in a place that you can find some joy amongst these these difficult topics but what do you kind of hope we're going to be able to achieve at, at the big one over, over this weekend? I think it's still very important to put concrete demands into government I mean it's amazing to see pickets outside eight or ten government departments but I was a little disappointed that we were, we weren't putting a demand into the Department for Education today you know actually crystallizing what we want what we needed but I think that there are a very large number of people here we're very widely dispersed absolutely at the heart of government I would say that this is at least as effective as a large demo I love the inclusivity of it all yeah it feels very empowering lovely to be with lots of people of like mind <laughs> always <laughs> I'm Sam Knight, I'm a climate justice activist who was involved very closely with the start of Extinction Rebellion in London and worked on that for about a year and then burnt out as we all do and I'm back and seeing, just checking in with the movement and it's so nice to kind of be back on the streets with people, it's like a very energising thing to be surrounded by other rebels out and hammering home the same messages. I hear, yeah, you've just arrived, you're kind of getting a sense of things, it's maybe half four on Friday, the, fir yeah. the first of the four days yeah. of, of the big one. Yeah, what are you hoping for this weekend? It's obviously a change of tactics. Yeah. That being said, we are looking at people sat in the road yeah. where I've sat before with Extinction yeah, Rebellion, yeah, 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 yeah. but there's certainly a very different police presence to some of the previous ones. Yeah. Um, yeah, what are your sort of thoughts and feelings towards this action? I feel like it's very easy for a lot of us to kind of slide into being like, armchair strategists for the climate movement and I found myself like in the last couple of years almost being cast in that role a little bit because I step back from doing organizing on the day-to-day -day, and therefore lots of people want to hear my opinions on things and I'm slowly coming around to the idea that I'm like let's just let people try shit out and see what works 
And so I'm quite excited about where this is going and like trying it out. What I would say is that like it needs to happen alongside other people also being allowed to try out their tactics. And like personally, I would want to see escalation and I'd want to see a adaptive, flexible enough strategy that local groups who want to take more direct action, more like action targeted against the fossil fuel bad guys are allowed to also crack on with that in a in a very multiplicitous kind of way. But we'll have to see. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. I don't think Extinct Rebellion is going to like lose much from this particularly. I think if anything, the big question of this particular rebellion is how many people can the NGOs and the charities mobilize? Because that's really what people have staked this mobilization on. I mean, having been involved for many years, like Extinction Rebellion has always basically been able to turn out like 20,000 people, 30,000 people max. Like that's sort of our like mobilizing capacity and it has been since like 2019, if we're totally honest. And we've always set ourselves totally unachievable targets. <laughs> and the latest unachievable target is this 100,000 target. And the idea was that charities and NGOs were going to contribute to that. Let's see. Let's see what they actually look like as a mobilizing force. And if they can't do it, I think the climate movement's got to think seriously about like how it continues its relationship with those kind of organizations, which are pulling it in a more reformist direction. Interesting. I guess in the past, organizations like Greenpeace were doing a lot of confrontational direct action. I couldn't even name the decade, but yeah, 20, yeah, yeah. 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. And they've obviously evolved into what we kind of know them as now as a more, I guess, mainstream, more, yeah. more establishment kind of green organization. I guess it feels natural that Extinction Rebellion might follow that path, yeah. whilst we also seeing the offshoots and uh, yep. the spin outs that, that are coming through. Do you think this represents a step in that direction? I really hope not. Like, I think that is the, the thing that everyone is wary of. But my instincts is that enough people inside the movement are also wary of that. Like, you've got to remember, like, a lot of the people, like, organizing Extinction Rebellion actually aren't of my generation who had, like, no experience with Greenpeace. They're a generation above me who, like, actually, like, fundamentally were quite scarred by the bureaucratization of Greenpeace and really desperately don't want XR to go in that direction. So I think if it increasingly heads in that direction, we're headed for some like quite interesting debates about its future. And my guess is that that will be resisted. I think Extinction Rebellion will probably be shut down rather than bureaucratized, as it were. But I might be wrong and it might go down that path too. And the energy might go elsewhere. I think the only problem with what happens if the energy goes elsewhere to like the radical movements that we're seeing crop up, like Just Stop Oil, Insulate Britain, etc., etc., is that what Extinction Rebellion was really good at doing in our heyday, if I don't sound like too much like an old man for talking about 2019 <laughs> as a heyday, was mobilizing people on a mass scale and really being a container for mass mobilization, mass politics and getting people out in that way. We're still going to need that. Like the climate movement absolutely needs that. We can't all do Just Stop Oil protests. And I absolutely support Just Stop Oil, absolutely support their aims. A lot of my good friends are in prison right now, right? But like we've got to also realize that that isn't something that everybody can get involved in and it's not going to be the key that unlocks radically transformative climate justice policies so what do you see your role as you, you mentioned the oh god the, the strategist role <laughs> that you're maybe yeah sometimes get cast as and maybe sometimes happy to adopt and you also talked about your own burnout yeah um, after yeah the first few full-on years of Extinction Rebellion. So, yeah, what, what's the well, future Well, when I burnt out of XR, I 
moved to doing a lot of climate justice work with smaller organisations like museum occupations, smaller protests, things like that. And then I worked for a long time with Momentum, setting up climate justice committee for them. So it was really trying to connect the labour movement, i.e. the sort of like lower capital L labour movement, not the Labour Party, the, the unions, etc., to the climate movement and saying, look, I think we are allies in this fight and we've got to fight that struggle for climate justice, that eco-socialist horizon that we're moving towards, we should be moving towards, together. So that was for a long time my focus. I've just started working for Green New Deal Rising, who are organising lots of young people around the banner of the Green New Deal. So, you know, I'm still in that kind of space and hoping for more radical politics to emerge. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess I've had a similar kind of journey to you, that the activism's great, and it's essentially it's a bit of a way in for a lot of people, I think, or, is, yeah. or a wake-up call yeah. for, for people. And then you start to think, OK, well, what job or role do I want in this yeah, yeah, movement yeah. and then it, it tends to be a bit I guess maybe possibly less radical or certainly less confrontational most organizations are less confrontational than than the activist organizations so it, you're then in this weird space of like okay the kind of activity I'll be involved in is probably less radical than the thing that got me into it in the first yeah. place yeah and I think I yearn for that as well because I'm like a creature of XR in the sense that like I came to activism through XR, so it's like deeply interred within my own bones, right? It's like, unless I'm like sat on the ground with the police trying to drag me away, I don't feel like I'm doing activism. And like, that's a bad thing as well as a good thing. Like, like that's what activism looks like to me, and that's not what activism is. Like, activism is more than that. Activism includes that, but it is also, you know, the hard work of coalition building. It is also everything that encapsulates what organizing and mobilizing looks like. So like, it can be a bad thing, but absolutely like, I think a lot of us are also yearning for that kind of mass radical tactics to match a radical politics and I think that's the challenge for the next coming years is like look we've got people who are using radical tactics like Just Up Oil, we've got people who are talking about radical things like all the left-wing groups but how are we going to marry those? How are we going to marry those two? Wicked. Well, yeah, enjoy your weekend. Lovely to meet you. Great to talk to you. But I did write this song when I went to prison. I went to prison for the road protests that were prevalent back in the end of the 90s. I didn't go for long, but just long enough to get this song written. <laughs> I swear by the lake on the mountain. I swear by blood that's red. I swear on the cool, clear night end. I swear on my child's head that I will never rest. Until all oppression is ended And I will never rest Until all oppression is dead I swear to tigers in the forest about creativity and about everything that you're going to bring to it 
So whatever language you speak, whatever your creativity is, whatever language you speak in, speak. Speak now with words so we don't speak later with rocks and guns. Speak while it is poetry and not tear gas that clings to your lungs. Commit radical acts of empathy in universities, workplaces and street corners, carnivaling a riotous love. Every defaced billboard, poetry. Every marker penned advert, poetry. Every poster, every placard, every sticker, every chant, poetry. Poetry. We will dance our cadence across the foothills of history. We are figures of speech, forever striving to define the eternal life force we draw on, an ethic twisted into our DNA. We are the vibration of a melody resonating in every creature, however microscopic, that is shaking free. We are a movement, an interface, a transfer of energy, the shudder of an earthquake caused by a fracking rig. <coughs> we are Mother Nature clearing her throats. We fizz with an energy that will not be channeled into the algorithms of social media campaigns. We come with sharp pointed implements behind our teeth, amplified devices in our chests, and love clenched in our fists. We're the iambic heartbeats of the human race. We are an ecosystem of beauty that makes things all change, all change, all change, all change.
sadly, they are not the only people absent from our community today. Where are the RSPB? Yeah! NGOs that purport to be concerned about protecting the wildlife in this country. This is biodiversity today. They should be here with their members, standing up as we stand, to take a stand to say that we want to protect that life. So we're halfway along the big biodiversity march on Saturday 22nd of April. Uh, we're walking towards the Houses of Parliament and I'm here with my good friend Simon. And yeah, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us why you're here today? Thanks Simon. I'm also Simon. Simon Hoyt. Well, I've been very interested in sort of environment conservation issues for many years. I'm now studying uh, sort of environmental anthropology at UCL, working in, in the rainforest of Cameroon, so it's very kind of in my face. I'm here because the situation has just got increasingly bad. It's evidently the case that nothing's going to be done unless we have some sort of serious disruption to the status quo. That's one of the best outcomes of these sorts of events. You feel motivated to uh, get much more involved and do whatever else you can when you're when the march is over. So it's about yeah, a boost for people working in this area, doing activism in this area. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, who, who knows the mix of people that are here, the different jobs that they do, different ways they're interested in these issues. You know, it's probably completely, completely wide ranging. But we're all here for a sort of common, common cause. So it's great to bring different minds together. And what would be your message, given we're coming up to Parliament? Uh, it's a Saturday, so there's no MPs in there, unless they're doing a bit of extra work. But what would be your message to, I guess, government and people in positions of power? First is the really important, um, one of the main aims of Extinction Rebellion, tell the truth. Because active denial of the science, well, not just the science, but also the situation and people's lives people's realities around the world. You know, denying that sort of stuff is essential if you're going to refuse that climate change is, is happening or not give it the attention that it deserves, the radical change it deserves. Tell the truth, firstly. Secondly, I would say very actively address and look at the various injustices that are happening right now with climate defenders, frontline defenders, indigenous communities, but also here in the UK, in London, social injustice, and environmental injustice, which is, you know, happening with like a nuclear power plant, you know, that's happening with a, um, a rubbish burning facility, you know, in East London. All these little things really matter. I would say to them, you need to pay attention to these various issues, not just ignore them. And thirdly, looking at ways to create a sort of more sustainable future, which talking about renewables, talking about technology, but in a sort of social context where about people's rights and people are involved in that process this idea of citizens assemblies these sorts of things 
not just thinking that government or even scientists necessarily have all the, the, the answers or all the power. It should be a dem democratic kind of co-creation process where we're all in it together. That's what I'd say. Nice. Well, we'll write those down and, uh, yeah, we'll deliver those. Thank you. So I can, I can maybe send this podcast to a few MPs for you. Finally. And just to finish up, we're, we're on this biodiversity march. You can hear the drums around us, helicopter keeping an eye on things. It's very colourful and beautiful and a lot of smiling people and mixture of ages and, and folks from all around the country, really. Where do you think nature needs to fit into all of this? Because yeah often the focus is climate we've been chanting about climate justice yeah where do you see see nature in in this fight for a livable future well how much time do you have but um yeah it's separating the climate crisis and the ecological crisis into two phenomena you know is obviously artificial it's all together you know we're all part of the one system you know call it Gaia call it whatever you want uh, if you affect one aspect of it it's going to affect the whole system I think the separation is partly sort of a political thing partly a scientific thing but for many people around the world that distinction doesn't exist as well as the distinction between humans and what we call nature in many many people's uh, world views including where I work there's no word for nature you know it's there's no word for that separation between culture and, and nature. You are part of your environment and it's, it's obvious. Things that you do every day affects everything around you, including your environment and the other species living around you. So I think something really useful would be to kind of share that sort of take on it, that sort of worldview with people who live here. And it's interesting looking around, many people are sort of dressing up as different animals, um, taking on these, I was saying earlier, sort of quite pagan attitudes or beliefs which in one hand could seem a bit, could seem quite counterproductive in that if you're looking through the window of a banker, he's going to think, who are these crazy people dressing up as bees and leopards or whatever. But on the other hand, from my own experience, it's completely essential that people re-engage with this aspect that we are part of this broader system. And if we're to address these sorts of issues in a sustainable way, that reconnection with what we call nature, you know, non-humans, uh, relation with the land, it's completely essential because the only way to arrive at the, si the situation that we're at is through exploiting that that system and not accepting that sort of close relationship. So re-engaging with that, hopefully I can help with that. <laughs> Amazing work. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, my friend. So I'm Sam and I'm, yeah, I currently live in Leeds, I'm 20 years old and I, yeah, I work full time for Just Stop Oil um, trying to get a student resistance movement on the go and I'm here to try and use the, like, the, this moment that we've got with tens of thousands of people in the streets of London who are lots of them just coming into this movement and to try and bring them on to the course of what we think is going to be the thing that creates effective change which is mass civil resistance so that I'm here signing people up for the resistance project. You've got your clipboard. How's it going? It's actually going incredibly well. Like there's, you know, literally, as I said, thousands of people that are very, very new to this movement that don't have what you know the sort of baggage of like 
not necessarily knowing the politics between groups. And I think, you know, like I was reading Zach Exley's and Becky Bond's um, book about, you know, rules for revolutionaries and like, you know, upcoming political revolution. And they say people new to politics are the best revolutionaries. And I think that's true. You know, people that come in, see it for what it is and think, this is brilliant this weekend. We've got everyone here in London. But obviously, if we're going to need to make change, it's so logical that we're going to have to stay here. And it's like, you know, I think that's clear as day to the new people. Um, and that's, you know, that's brilliant that we can speak to them. And that's, you know, that's why this event is great. And, you know, signpost them to what we're going to be doing. The drummers are on the way. We've just been on a massive march. Did, did you take part? And yeah, how, how have you enjoyed the day so far? I, I actually haven't been taking part in the march. I was at a slow march training this morning. We're fully focused on getting these sign-ups. I mean, if I'm going to be honest, I think that to be marched, to be still like continuing these tactics as a main show is a wrong decision. And I find it disheartening that this is the sort of trajectory of you know what was the forefront of the UK's resistance movement for the climate emergency. So I think like you know I feel grounded in what we're doing. We're here to signpost people towards what we think is going to make the change to what we think is what you know standing in real solidarity with the people that have been screwed over. So I think that's you know I've, that's the mission I'm here for. The Just Up Oil slow march is essentially like a cross between a classic like you know roadblock that we've seen for the last four years and a general march like has happened today, a normal march. So you essentially shuffle forward as slow as possible without being arrested. It's like a, like a beautiful loophole in the law, which means that we can cause the disruption, get the headlines, cause the material disruption that's going to force the policy change and people don't have to be arrested. So we can broaden our movement to more people that weren't able to take part before. You know, this has been used in movements throughout history, like, you know, in oppressive regimes, people do like slow convoys, just walk really slowly on the street because they can't face the repression of, you know, taking part in roadblocks or all the rest of it. So, you know, we're just like, we've not invented this. This is like, a, you know, it's been used throughout the, throughout, you know, resistance movements to kick up a fuss. And so this is what we're going to be, that's what we're going to be doing. So just paint as a picture finally of, yeah, upcoming plans. What, what can people get involved with? What might we be expecting to see? across the newspapers and TV media if it goes well. So every single day from Monday the 24th of April, we're going to be slow marching in London every single day until the demand is met for no new oil and gas extraction in the UK, no new licenses to drill up fossil fuels. Um, and you're going to see teams of people getting increasingly smaller, clogging up the capital, bringing things to a grinding halt until we get this demand met because there's nothing left to lose and everything left to lose. It's full systems go with the resistance. And you're going to see hundreds of, and hopefully thousands of people engaging in these slow, slow marches and saying, you know, not in our name are you going to throw everything down the gutter. Yesterday too, Just Stop Oil protesters were sent to jail. I think it was the Dartford Bridge that they'd climbed up into and, and were hanging out in, literally. That's obviously the possibility for someone taking part in a protest, but it also represents the state kind of clamping down and being pretty severe with climate activists, climate protesters. How do you feel about that news from yesterday? I mean, I think it's like absolutely absurd. I mean, these are like, you know, two people that are stepping up to stop our government pursuing its genocidal policy of new oil and gas extraction. They're like, you know, the most well-meaning people you could ever meet. And they're currently sat in prisons. I think they're both in London for the next year now. That's what they've been sentenced to, it's horrific. But at the same time, it shows that what we're doing is working. Like, you know, we've, we've prodded the beast and we're going to continue to do so. And when you do that, they're going to crack down on you. And that shows that, you know, they're, they're concerned by us. They want to stop it. They, you know, the, the, judge, the judge said, well, I want to stamp it out before it can, you know, before it happens again. 
that shows you that the, you know the establishment the judiciary the police the government are concerned about what we're doing because they can see that we have the power when we engage in civil resistance in solidarity with marcus and morgan who are sat behind bars for the next year we're going to continue going we're not going to stop that's what they'd want Hi, I'm Ruth Carpenter and I've been coming to Rebellion since the April 2019 Rebellion uh, when I was on Waterloo Bridge with kind of the Southwest XR group and I spent two days on Waterloo Bridge. It's just too huge really, isn't it, to kind of narrow it down to one thing. So I have got children and grandchildren. I am horribly worried for their future. But I know that at the moment they're in a privileged position and there's people throughout you know, the world who are already suffering the consequences of the climate crisis. So I'm here to try and encourage you know, other people to kind of get their boots on the ground and come out and really be counted. We care for each other and in wind and rain we survive In the heat of the sun, in the heat of the sun we survive In the heat of the sun we survive With hearts full of love we care for each other In the heat of the sun we survive through drought and We've got XR parents and elders. We've got XR Faith Bridge, which is bringing together lots and lots of faith groups, including Christian Climate Action, XR Buddhists, XR Muslims. And there's also quiet zones that they've arranged. If we want to have a little sanctuary space, some of the churches nearby have, have offered us a quiet space, a sanctuary space. I want to talk to you about being a mum, if that's all right. Being a mother in, a, in the times of crisis, being a mother in a climate emergency, being a mother during the sixth mass extinction of our planet, it's quite a, a grief-stricken thing to be in these times, to be a mother. There's a lot of guilt, there's a lot of desolation, there's a lot of desperation. And I felt all of that really, really heavily on my body, my mind was severely depressed, anxious, and I was lucky enough to find somebody in the baby, well, toddler group that I was at, and I was also at a breastfeeding feeding group. My, my youngest was just born, and there was a mum, and she was taking a phone call, and I was like, are you back to work already? And she said, oh, have you heard of XR? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I do know about Extinction Rebellion, but it's a bit hard to sort of go and do that when you've got a little baby and other kids. She said, no, 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 we're going we're gonna to do this thing, we're going to do this action at Downing Street. We're just going to go and sit in the road and feed our babies. And I was like, that's amazing, that's such a great idea, what do you need? And from that moment, every time I passed a, a parent with a buggy, or a parent with a, with a small child in a sling, I'd say, come to Downing Street on the 8th of October, this was 2019, come to Downing Street, 8th of October, we're going to protest against climate collapse with our babies. And it's going to be a babies friendly action and they're like what i was like yes we're going to feed our babies that's the action we're just going to sit on down in, outside down the street and we're going to feed our babies we've got to feed breastfeed however you feed them 
and we got about 400 women together on the 8th of October 2019 with other groups of parents, other activist groups and climate concern groups and it changed my life and I suddenly thought there's space for me, there's space for me in these little people that I need to look after, there's space for my vulnerability. It's probably, it's probably the most vulnerable time of your life when you, you give birth and you feel completely unprotected and unfortunately we have a government and a society that penalises you for having children. You, you're supposed to still be able to afford your own rent and your bills and then afford the things you need for your child. You can't work, but it, unless you go back to work, you don't get any financial support. And I was one of those people, I was a freelance performer and I got, I bless the government for giving me my 52 pound every two weeks. But that was it. And I found, through my anxiety and my depression, I found other, mom other mamas who were willing to stand up against climate breakdown. They were really realising that we, we had power in our vulnerability. We had power with our small people that we were caring for. And by the way, when you're a new mum, every, every journey outside the house is an absolute celebration. If you're a parent, you, you understand. Every, every night that you get through, it's an absolute celebration. If you get to the end of the day and you've managed to like brush your teeth or put on clean socks, it's like a celebration. So I, I really want to big up all the parents that have brought their children today, all the parents who were on that march yesterday with their babies and their children. And look at, look how many people are in this very city. I don't believe God makes coincidences. So together let's change the world, you know? Because all these things that people are running for are things that are affecting people. We are all being affected under the Draconian system. So always raise your voice and speak for what's right. Speak for others, speak for black lives, speak for trans lives, speak up for restoring Africa. I'm sorry, that continent is the richest continent in the world that is responsible for 3% of global emissions. So many countries in Africa were colonised by this very country and we host the London Marathon. We have a coronation. I didn't give a shit about coronation. There are no coronations on a dead planet. Because if we don't rise up now, that's it. Some of us already know. A police officer known as the name NX121 shot dead Chris Cabber, a black man who was 24 years old studying architecture and was a father to be. So we do this because we can and because we have hope and they cannot take our fight and they cannot take our power because the power always belongs to the people no matter how many shareholders are involved so Shell can go to hell you know Adani can go to hell companies that are exploiting people can go to hell because there are more slaves in the world today through forced labour and trafficking than there ever has been in any moment of time. We have a gold clock in the same country where we're struggling to get a doctor's appointment. I believe. But anyway, we are orchestrated discontent. We are gonna play some music for you. Um, I get very angry about the state of the world, but I tell you what, this isn't all for nothing. This is because we have hope. They run because they have hope. We are here because we have hope. They are running because they have hope. There are more people in London today than it has ever been. 
oh my lord, why have we got a mission to the moon in 2025? When we don't know a dinosaur bone here, that are older than a million years. So I think it's time to sort out what's on earth, and honestly, I'm tired. I've been there as a black woman. I'm exhausted, but I'm still here. I see you black women, right? They don't know, but I'm being like, you know? We got this, we're tired. So let's fight together in solidarity. Let's fight for Iran, let's fight for Sudan. Let's fight for Chris Cameron, let's fight for Marcus and Morgan. Let's fight for me, let's fight for you, let's fight for the runners, for the ones of asthma, for the ones of illnesses, for the ones who can't breathe, for the ones who can't see, for the ones who can't hear, I'm outside Big Ben, um, as you can hear, I'm in the middle of Parliament Square. Yeah, I'm in this sort of mashup, really, of marathon runners and environmental protesters. Um, and that noise you just heard was the 3pm emergency alert warning system um, that the UK government just tested out for the first time ever. Sure enough, my phone went off and I saw people everywhere grabbing their phones and looking at whatever this noise was that's coming out of it, even if phones were on silent. I thought that was a good kind of analogy for uh, the emergency situation that we're in with the climate, with nature, with wildlife. But I guess you could say most people are continuing with their day or even running, running into the future that we're currently building for ourselves. So yeah, it's a bit of a, bit of a strange, strange atmosphere today. There's some music, dancing, talks, all going on meters away from where people are running past uh, and where crowds and crowds are gathering to cheer them on in what is obviously an incredible achievement. I think this is the 24th mile of the 26 and a bit mile marathon. So it's absolutely taking nothing away from these runners. Um, but yeah, I guess sports and protest is an interesting one that's pretty topical at the moment, given that we've recently seen the Snooker World Championship in Sheffield disrupted by Just Stop Oil. We've also seen the Grand National delayed start due to animal rising protesters who have been represented here in London at the big one as well. Before that we've had Premier League football matches disrupted before and I think it's likely we're going to see more of that. As far as I know today at the London Marathon there's been absolutely no disruption by protesters um, which was a very conscious decision. Extinction Rebellion even said they would be trying to stop any disruption of that event. To be honest, I think that's a wise decision because 
the, the, the number of people doing this marathon for such important causes, that many of those causes will be environmental as well. But clearly they're all linked. There's no point saving the climate, saving the planet, if your primary concern is not saving people. And to be fair to most of these runners, that's what they're here for. So I think there's a lot in common and there's, yeah, it's quite an amazing scene of Extinction Rebellion flags, 20, 30, 40 of them in a row along Westminster Square, Parliament Square. So I think that kind of shows a mutual respect really. Um, but it's also an interesting one when you come to think about tactics um, and the protest actions that get the biggest headlines are the ones that piss off the most people in my experience but there's a fine line between pissing people off and trying to actually build consensus and build concern for the environmental problems that we face. So my name's Andrew and I'm working with the, the London Marathon uh, and on behalf of them working with the, the guys at XR. Interesting, so that explains why you're stood here essentially between those two things. Exactly, yeah, I'm, I'm acting as liaison between the, the Marathon and XR. So yeah, t tell us more, How, how's that been? It's been brilliant, um, it's been a really open, constructive um, set of conversations. Um, I think there's a lot of mutual respect um, and I think both parties have tried really hard and been really successful in building a, a really constructive relationship. I mean, you can see the happy melting pot that, that is here, um, that is, it's been really successful. So I guess, yeah, it's 10 past three. Um, this is sort of exactly what you were hoping for, right? A hundred percent. I mean, um, what we wanted was for you guys to be able to, to do what you guys wanted to do um, and for the marathon runners to be able to do what they've sweated blood and tears over months to, to get ready for and for everybody just to get out of it what they, they wanted and I think it's been a huge success in that regard. So was it almost a negotiation? Was it like, was there almost concessions to be made to say, well... It didn't feel, it genuinely didn't feel like that. It was just open dialogue in terms of making sure that from our perspective, XR really understood the kind of the event the marathon is. It's, it's a sporting event, but it's also not a sporting event. Um, you know, there's 60, 65 million pounds being raised for charity today. 100 elite runners, but there are then 44, 45,000 ordinary runners. So it's it's a very unusual sporting event. So we were really keen that we made sure that was understood. And then from our perspective, it was simply about saying we, you know, we're neutral in this. We want both events to be successful. We want it to be a happy day. I mean, if you look, if you look back at the founders of the, the London Marathon, some of the key principles they wrote are really, really pertinent today about marathon somehow in big cities, they were inspired by New York. A marathon somehow brings out the best in humanity. Um, so let's, let, we're in this together, so let's work on this together. Cool, well, 
yeah, good luck the rest of the day. Thank you. Uh, hope it all goes smoothly for you and uh, yeah, well, well done, I guess. No, it's been an absolute pleasure working with them. Hi, I'm Annie and I'm, I'm doing outreach at the moment um, with handing out leaflets and stickers trying to let the general public know what we're doing and why we're here. And how's it going? What's the sort of reaction? Really well, yeah, really well. I think uh, there's quite a few people that are here for the marathon and they're very focused on seeing their, their relatives so they're in a bit of a different zone but people are, you know, they're, they're hearing the music and they're seeing the flags and the, the colours and, you know, they're getting the vibe that, you know, we're good people and, and um, that we, we, we mean no harm um, and it's a, it's a thing, climate crisis is, affects all of us, everyone and if it just makes them think for a second about it, that's, that's great because it builds time out really. Um, sat here with my friend Simon Hoyt who you heard from earlier in the episode during the march that we were on yesterday and we just thought we'd have a little reflection of how things are going on the social media which might seem strange we're still sat here at the protest. We haven't been looking at our phones too much but yesterday after the big march we went and got a bit of food and looked at for our best kind of photos and videos we had these great photos and videos taken by Simon Hoy um, of the die-in. So this was when people, including us, laid down outside Parliament at the end of the march. So, yeah, I think it's fair to say there were thousands of people on the floor. It was a biodiversity march, so we were representing the animals, but the people as well that are threatened with their lives. We crafted some tweets, posted a photo, posted a video. How would you summarise what happened next? Because it was it's basically 24 hours ago we posted this. I seem to remember uh, within a minute and a half or something, you tapped me on the shoulder and pointed at the <laughs> pointed at the figures. It was uh, it was really climbing the ladder of exposure. I was just saying uh, you must have really nailed the exact time and the algorithm for reaching reaching a lot of people. It's crazy. After essentially 24 hours, or 22 hours it's saying on my phone, across these two tweets, we've had over a thousand retweets, over a thousand five hundred comments, and close to a couple of thousand, I think over two thousand likes. And we're just looking at the reach of those two tweets. Combined reach, over a quarter of a million people saw one of these two tweets of the die-in outside Parliament yesterday. So, great success. What do you think? The notifications on my phone, and I'm not even the one who tweeted, <laughs> have been enough to, uh, to make me mute it. So, uh, it was enjoyable for a while. It's, it's interesting seeing the, the comments. Yeah, it's, 
in some ways it's interesting. It's interesting in a sort of anthropological sense. Like, uh, look at the mentality of some of the people and how they're relating to these, this issue. But at the same time, it's also like the same sort of stuff that you just hear again and again and people have complained about for years. So in that way, it's kind of like the same sort of people just go round and round and round. There's a lot of insults and abuse. I haven't read 1,500 comments, obviously, and they're coming in minute by minute as we speak. Um, brainwashed zombies. What will replace fossil fuels if it was shut, shut down today? Millions would starve and freeze to death. What is your solution? Um, another one just says mugs. Um, where's Al-Qaeda when you need them? So there's, there is a lot of anger and like violent rhetoric especially because the pictures and video is of a die-in. A lot of people jump to sort of shame that those people are gonna get up or, you know, wish that they were actually dead. Um, you know, look at the clothes they're wearing. What did you have for lunch? How, transport, everyone says, how did they travel there? I bet you, bet you all drove there or took a train or bus. But certainly I think in this new era of Twitter, there are far more people piling in with their anger and frustration and negativity. Elon Musk's Twitter, this one wasn't even direct action, this was a pre-planned march, reports saying 60, 70, some of BBC I think are quoting 90,000 people on that march we were on yesterday. But what do you think this reaction tells us about the wider public perception of protests like this? In some ways, you could say it's a great success. That in itself shows that there's a lot of, attracted a lot of attention and a lot of focus when there's a million other topics around in the world. So in some ways you could say, brilliant, yeah, keep them coming. In many ways, like I heard uh, one of the protesters saying yesterday, the further we come on this, this struggle and the more it gets to the roots of the cause, the more kind of fight back we're gonna get because it gets to the real, the real foundational stuff which people you know, really care about or um, will change it will, will change a lot of things in society societal changes you know the main thing I would say is to not take it as just a representation of the general public and I think the majority of people would read those and not agree with them and be quite shocked at how uh, violent they are and negative they are when actually it's a protest in essence about our future survival together. Like I was saying yesterday, there's literally signs flying around here saying kindness and love and, you know, supporting each other. We were singing yesterday on the road just over there. So, you know, anyone who disagrees with that, you know, you don't want to be friends with, really. And you wouldn't want to be uh, around you. So I think it's, uh, it's something which you just have to shove, shove off. Right, well, I think we've seen a couple of marathon runners walking past, so better go for another wonder. Thanks for your reflections on this Twitter bombshell. Please tweet us uh, if you're interested in uh, giving us some comments. <laughs> nice tweets only, please. I've come down from Leeds because I felt that this is maybe our, one of our last chances of actually trying to influence the government to make some really important changes, particularly about opening more oil fields and coal fields and things like that in the very near future, which of course will be utterly disastrous for us. The real disappointment from my point of view is that the press have given no coverage of this at all and people recognise there were 90,000 people here so it was a terrific atmosphere.
Emma, what are your thoughts on the sort of tactics of the protest this weekend? It's been a sort it's of more really traditional. I feel the press would have been interested had something happened to disrupt the marathon previously when there's been disruption. Of course, the press have been all over it and it has got into the news. And I really feel this time that by toning it down because everyone wanted it toned down because people were fed up with the disruption it means that it doesn't get heard as loudly the issue now which is being already debated is whether if the the government actually don't listen to the proposals that are going to be made at five o'clock this afternoon that people like xr are going to revert to spicy action and see where that gets to to see if anyone listens with that type of tactic so is that is that what you're expecting is that something you'll be thinking about getting involved in from my point of view because i'm old (laughs) and so so climate change will probably barely affect me but i'm more concerned about the younger generation my children my extended family and my grandchildren yeah i think i'd be prepared to do spicy action because i don't actually lose anything yeah, I've, I've noticed that previously on other marches, how many older people are really prepared to put themselves out there because obviously it doesn't the, the arrests and things aren't going to impact them in the same way, which I think is great, really. Um, and just a final word, because I know there's a lot of the ethos behind this weekend was making climate protests more accessible and inclusive by being less disruptive, but given you're in a mobility scooter I thought I'd ask you know how accessible is it for for yourself and do you think for for other people uh, I'd say say brilliantly accessible went to a brilliant set of talks yesterday which included Chris Packham and there was a space at the front which was for people with hearing difficulties with a, a signer there and I was right at the front so I could see what was happening so yes I'd say brilliant excellent well that's good to hear so I'm Dr. Aaron Thierry. I'm a member for a group called Scientists for Extinction Rebellion. So along with the team of others, you're here in a white lab coat. That's right, yeah. Uh, it says I'm a scientist on the front. Uh, we're sat now on Monday lunchtime, really. There's a lot of eating going on and there's people's assemblies going on here on the, on the grass um, and on the road just outside Parliament. So yeah, what, what's been the message of your group, Scientists for XR, this weekend? Yeah, I mean, we've just been here to show that we support what's going on, that um, we've been answering lots of questions that anybody might have uh, about the science, but also just really to kind of give legitimacy to everything that everybody else is doing. You know, they're doing this because of all the reports that have been published the, you know, again and again over decades. The reports in the science haven't got through in the way that they need to to make governments act, right? If it, if it was, say, in rational <laughs> world, we'd be, you know, acting on, on these warnings because they're so, so dire, but... Um, you know the people get it they're they're here they're resonating to that message and they've come together recognizing that our politics is failing and having to say we need to rebuild something else and and you know that's partly why there's this demand in for a citizens assembly and we need to see you know much more participation in our democracies to really reclaim that power and and and, and stop it from being so corrupted by the power of vested interests like the fossil fuel lobby and so on so my name is holly and i'm a partner of marcus who, if you don't know about it, climbed the QE2 bridge back in October last year and hung a banner saying, just stop oil, to give everyone yet another warning of what will come if we don't stop using fossil fuels. When Judge Collery finally sentenced Marcus to two years and seven months and Morgan to three years 
in prison on Friday. He said, as you've heard, that their actions were disproportionate. He also said that it was not his duty to express any opinion on the cause, but to sentence within the law only. He said, Marcus and Morgan felt themselves to be so important that, and I quote, to hell with everyone else. And he looked directly at the news reporters as he said that. He said these men should be punished for what they did and their sentence should act as a deterrent to anyone tempted to do anything similar. And finally he said he had no reason to think that the last six months had made Marcus and Morgan any less committed to the cause. As if six months in prison might have convinced them that climate change isn't real. Well, I say, shame on you, Judge Collery. I am, as ever, astounded at their resilience, their generosity, their cheerful spirits, their senses of humour, and their solid moral compass. I can speak more for Marcus because I speak to him most days. As a good friend recently said to me, the winners here are Chelmsford Prison because they have Marcus. He teaches people songs, he plays chess, he listens to everyone's stories, and he stays the most positive and principled person I've possibly ever met. The COVID-19 pandemic gave us a dress rehearsal for the climate crisis. As dreadful as it was, we can learn so much from it. COVID proved that overnight, we could make the changes necessary to save lives. I have a vision of free public transport, of a nationalised rail system, of bicycle paths prioritising roads, of trees prioritising buildings, of carers being valued over bankers, of art and culture being valued over advertising, of clean water available to everyone, and of air which is sweet to breathe. I have a dreamlike vision of Marcus and Morgan stepping out of prison into a transformed world, a little bit like Dorothy steps into Oz out of black and white and into colour. They step out to the sounds of birds, bees and bicycle bells, to the smell of flowers, to the sight of smiles and to a world of well-being and it is that vision that keeps me going. So on day four we are just marching down the road, we've just come past Whitehall, Trafalgar Square and it's all looking pretty peaceful. Um, just here with Beth is by a, a taxi that's sort of halfway into the road. What, what's going on here? So we, we're just crossing like a few smaller roads as we go past and um, there was a line of taxis that wanted to go through um, and the march had to stop for a few sort of five, ten minutes uh, which opened up a bit of a gap um, and the taxi driver really wanted to push through but he's now got out of his car. Yeah, there's now a line of stewards in front um, and the march is continuing. Yeah. 
I guess this is the, the cold face, if you like, of uh, protesting. Yes. What's your experience been at, at other protests? Are you kind of comfortable now in this in that kind of situation? Yeah, um, I think definitely the most confrontation you get is that sort of stuff in people's cars. Um, they don't really like being stopped. I think in that situation, he was just a bit annoyed. He wasn't going to run us down, so yeah, definitely a bit more comfortable with stuff like that because I know that people generally stop if you if you have a chat with them um, and there are lots of people around yeah kind of the final march really on day four of the big one has this sort of inspired you is it, is it like a morale boost for someone like you to come to, to, to this weekend yeah it feels a lot more hopeful there's a lot of people here who've been around for a while and a lot of people who are new um, and coming to their first protest and it feels like we are building connections uh, which is really nice I think it is sad that, you know, the government is cracking down by putting in some quite severe anti-protest laws, which means that stuff like this is much, much harder to do. So that sort of government clampdown doesn't deter you? Um, I think it does a little bit, um, but I think it's important enough to act in whatever way you can. And I think we'll definitely see a change to protests over the next few years. Um, and a lot more people going to prison and facing arrests um, than we've seen before. Um, which isn't what it's about. It's about people making a stand and feeling like they can have their voice heard, which is a shame. Um, but I think I'm still going to do things because there's no way that I can live with myself if I don't. So we're outside the headquarters of Shell in London and we are making it clear that they've lost their social license to operate. Their core activities are damaging all of us and uh, we're here basically to tell them that, that you know we're not going to accept that anymore and you know either they change their practices and get out of fossil fuel or we will shut them down because they're their practices are, are dangerous and they, they must not be allowed to continue. They are, and it's not like, you know, we've, for, for a long time we've talked about climate change being an issue in the future and stuff like that. It's, oh, it's got to be a problem for the polar bears, it's got to be a problem for our grandchildren. No, the activities of Shell are causing suffering and death right now. And that's just with their, their core activities. So Shell actually has some very, very dodgy practices in the Niger Delta, for example, in West Africa. They've been um, in, involved not just in huge environmental disasters, but you know, proper, proper dodgy stuff socially, like um, you know, hu proper human rights abuses and colluding with the former military government of Nigeria to, to properly um, 
you know, clamped down on, on indigenous activists, including you know, ed the execution of Ken Sarawiwa in, in the 90s. So, so Shell are a particularly dodgy business, um, and they need to be brought to justice for their dodgy business. But the fact is, even if they were a good oil and gas operator, a, like the best in the business, the most because there is no such thing as an ethical oil and gas operator. Their core business is bad and has to stop. I should say, you're here in a, a white lab coat. Um, your name's Charlie Gardner. Um, you're, so you're here with scientists for XR. It's, it's Monday, day four of the big one. Why are you on the streets outside Shell in this giant march of protesters rather than in your office at work doing more research? Well. We've been doing that for a long time, right? We have presented the information to governments. The data is absolutely clear. We have to stop producing fossil fuels as fast as we possibly can. So, uh, yeah, as a scientist, we've done our job. Really. We've done our job. We've presented the information. That information has been ignored. So I think that means we need to, we need to rethink this idea of how being a researcher makes the world better, right? Because we have this naive idea that if we just generate information, yeah, society's leaders will use that information to make wise decisions in the public good. But of course that's nonsense because scientists aren't the only people the governments are listening to. They're also listening to other stakeholders, particularly corporate interests. And, you know, while scientists go to the government with graphs and data, corporate interests go to government with vast buckets of cash, right? So, of course, that ends up with the, scientists be, the science being ignored and the research being ignored because, ultimately, governance turns out not to be a question of information at all. It turns out to be about influence and power. So, I feel I didn't become a scientist because I wanted to do research. I became a scientist because I thought it would be a valuable tool to make the world a better place. And now it's clear that that's not happening. So... If, as a scientist, I want governments to implement policies that are based on the science, then doing science isn't enough. I have to become more influential and powerful to push them in, in that direction. And I feel I, I, I can do that by taking to the streets as part of a mass popular movement in a way that just simply providing more research just, just won't do. So I think I'm here because as a scientist, I'm an evidence-based practitioner, right? And I look at the evidence for what is going to be effective, and the evidence is very clear that boshing out another scientific paper is not going to sway our government, so, I'm, so I take to the streets instead. So I'm just sat outside Shell, right by the Millennium High, and I'm here with Sol, who I know from Leeds. <laughs> Glad to be here. And uh, yeah, we're both not far from leaving London, and it's sort of must be about four o'clock on the Monday. So yeah, just a quick time for reflection. So overall feelings of the weekend. I was about to say that the first thing I heard when I came out of the tube on Friday morning was an XR steward say, please stay off the road. Uh, um, yeah, not what you want. So I had this sort of underwhelming. The road that literally runs right by... Um, by Parliament. Right, yeah. So it's quite underwhelmed to begin with. Because, you know, I've, I've been to XR protests before where we've been doing the absolute opposite of that and literally taking over the road. So that was a sort of, yeah, bit of a weird start. But yeah. within an hour, the police had shut that road and the numbers of people started growing and growing throughout Friday. So, yeah, for me, the whole weekend's been excellent. 
Um, yeah, I feel similarly. Friday was a bit sort of sad. The rain didn't help, like I said. And uh, yeah, it kind of felt like no one was really in the mood for it. But people definitely warmed up to it, especially as the sun came out. And yeah, I was quite sad on Friday. I won't lie. I was a bit like, what am I even doing here? But then it got to Saturday and loads more people came. The sun was out. And it really did feel like a festival, which um, I think, yeah, generally it's probably a good change in tactic. Do you think that also? To sort of make it more accessible to people? Yeah, I think it's, for me, it, this weekend has worked. I don't think this will be the only tactic in the future. No, uh, but not I think for the overall movement, but maybe for XR, I don't know. Maybe. I think they've done a good job this weekend of getting a load of organisations behind the same banner, literally. Yeah. Almost showing the public as well that we, we can do softer approaches, but a lot of activists are pointing out that actually there wasn't a lot of coverage. Yeah, <laughs> there was these sort of obligatory yeah. reports of like, oh, Extinction Rebellion did do something, but it was nowhere near headline news. It wasn't on a lot of the you know, six o'clock news. Yeah. I've been struggling to find it. Even the Just Up Oil like, lockdown of central London this morning, even that was barely covered and that was a lot more disruptive because they weren't just outside Parliament. We'd like swarmed everywhere and we were walking around, you know, blocking all the roads and even that wasn't really on the news. Except the Daily Mail, they covered it straight away. Like, look at these eco-mob disrupting people's day-to-day -day lives, you know. Today has been my best day, personally. Um, it was a struggle waking up because our slow marches started at like half seven in the morning because we were trying to like block rush hour traffic basically so I was very tired I really didn't want to be there if I'm perfectly honest with you like before we started I said to the gang like I just want to leave like I feel sick I'm really nervous I don't want to be here it feels kind of wrong to be honest but once we got out there I started feeling a lot better and it was definitely disruptive and it got in the news like I said like front page of the Daily Mail other people covered it as well not the BBC weirdly enough but you know they're toothless, they don't really cover anything. Then after that I went to Glencore, which is a mining company. They're one of the biggest like mining and fossil fuel companies in the world. They operate like coal mines and stuff like that, especially in Global South, like Colombia. For instance, I heard about this one coal, open cast coal mine that they have there, um, where they basically like cut down the rainforest and um, open a massive pit, six times the size of Paris, and completely in like replaced indigenous communities that were living there and it's just like obviously completely destructive to the ecology of the region and the people who were living there and then it's reducing coal which is just adding to the climate crisis um, so I just went there with a small group and we went into the Glencore headquarters here in London and you just went into the building we went into the building yeah and just did a bit of yelling and banner waving and uh, and all of this stuff so it's called resist Glencore if you look that up and um, yeah it felt good to do that it was actually kind of de-stressing in a way compared to the stuff that was over just up oil it was actually way calmer because it was just like some people working on a desk and like a security guy compared to like all the streets of London yelling at us and calling us dickheads you know all of that all this Extinction Rebellion stuff afterwards is just really nice <laughs> so really your your Monday today has been the sort of diversity of tactics in a sense yeah so I think that's a good summary of the kind of things we're probably going to be seeing in the near future yeah the only thing that was missing was actually 
physically disrupting the process of extracting fossil fuels and you know ecological disruption but can't really do that here in London unfortunately so uh, that's the kind of thing that I want to get involved in personally because I feel like that would make more of a difference because that's where the destruction is happening there's only so much that you can do by marching around London and saying stop it because they're not going to stop it unless we make them stop it I feel. Cool, well thanks so much for uh, yeah, reflecting on the weekend and for everything you've been doing this weekend and I'm sure uh, into the future. <laughs> yeah, no worries, uh, glad to talk to you. So the march has continued after pausing outside Shell headquarters here in London. People are moving on, they're heading back to Parliament Square to surround Parliament and send our message to the people in power, politicians. I'm soon to be heading back. So thank you very much for listening today. I think this weekend's really been a sort of morale booster and setting out a stall for activism in the UK to attract new people and to discuss tactics, discuss next plans. I don't think this will be the end. If anything, this is sort of the start of a new phase of activism on the climate and ecological emergency in the UK. You've been listening to Climactic with me, Simon Moore, on the streets at The Big One in London. Big thanks to all my guests who stopped to talk to me over this long weekend. Thanks to Mark Spencer for his ongoing support and for giving me the platform that is the Climactic podcast. Finally, thank you for listening and for everything that you're doing. Until next time. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio.